Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. In this episode, I sit down with actor, writer, director, and rapper Riz Ahmed. If you only know Riz Ahmed from his recent starring role in HBO's The Night Of, consider yourself lucky. You've got some of the best movie watching of your life ahead of you. Before HBO brought him to wide attention, he was piling up work and critical acclaim in films like The Road to Guantanamo, Four Lions, and The Reluctant Fundamentalist. The funny, or maybe scary thing, is how close he came to not being an actor at all. To a UK-born son of Pakistani immigrants who struggled to find his place in a posh high school and then Oxford, breaking into show business didn't seem likely. How could it when he saw so few people like himself on screen? Luckily, fate intervened. Odd how that always seems to happen when extreme talent is involved. Though he's now likely to be seen by a much wider audience, Riz still approaches his work as though no one will be paying attention. It lets him stay true to his own personal experience of the world, which in the end is the best way to connect with it. Riz told me that if his work can stretch the boundaries of empathy in our ever more binary world, that's his holy grail. In this conversation, we talk about the three worlds he grew up in and how they informed his work. You'll also learn about his alter ego, Riz MC, and his seeming fondness for orange jumpsuits. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Riz. Hey, how you doing? Hey, thanks for coming and doing this. No, my pleasure. You know, I don't even know where to start with you because you do so many things. And I first heard of you and saw you in Nightcrawler. But in digging through your career and your history a little bit for this and also becoming just glued to Night Of when it came out, I realized, like, you've got this whole other side of you. You, you, You're a musician. You direct. You write. And I don't even want to start in on your political and your philosophical background because I'll just be out of my depth immediately. <laughs> so it's, it's intimidating and wonderful to have you here. Uh, look, I'm a big fan of the show, like I was telling you. I, I kind of think it's strange that um, you know, a lot of the time you train at drama school in the UK and then after that you don't really have a peer group or a community of actors to stay connected to. Um, whereas I think in the US it's more common for people to stay in classes and stay connected to community of actors. So this show has actually you know, weirdly been a resource for me to kind of go and watch and listen to actors talk about their process and their insecurities. And uh, That's you know, good. I should, charge, so. I should charge a fee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, okay, so that's interesting though because I think, you know, growing up as a photographer and a director, I definitely felt that isolation of, and still feel it, of wondering how other people go about their work and what their yeah. process is. And, you know, my secret fantasy is always to sort of shadow my heroes and to watch <laughs> what they do to see what I'm missing, you know, whether it's yeah. directors or photographers or whatever, whoever. And, you know, speaking of Nightcrawler and, and how I first became aware of you, you got to sit next to, literally, for the whole shoot of that movie, you got to sit next to Jake Gyllenhaal and watch his process. Yeah. It was... Um it was interesting, you know, Jake is just really, really dedicated, as you know. You know, you've seen the transformation he likes to go through physically sometimes and just how dedicated he is, how much he cares about his work. And it was, it was interesting because we'd start, we started rehearsing about a month beforehand. I thought, let me get out there early, do a lot of research about kind of homelessness in L.A. and that, that whole thing, Skid Row is its own world, and I thought maybe that character, Rick you know, has been homeless for a while. Yeah. And um, the way we'd rehearse is really interesting. I would be kind of very much from the British approach, just kind of analyzing the text. 
So we'd be sat at the table, I'd be going, no, but look, you know, on this line I say this, so surely that means I'm saying it for this reason, or doing, you know, detective work on the text, which he does as well, but it's interesting that his process was kind of like starving himself. Right, right. He would, and ride his bike to set, right? And yeah, while, while and run, home, run home after, like, a night shoot, and just, yeah, just, he would have, like, a, a cup of tea and a chewing gum. Well, what, was it, what did that sort of tell you, or what did, what did you sort of draw from that? I think it was a kind of just a different way of working that's more kind of visceral, you know, whether you call it method or, or whatever, um, kind of just a bit more physically immersive. And, you know, there's that old anecdote of, is it Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier when they were on Marathon Man? And Dustin Hoffman was, like, running up and down, running up and down on the film set, you know, trying to make himself out of breath for the scene. And he says, what are you doing? He's like, I've got to be tired in this scene. He goes, you should try something, uh, darling. It's called acting. <laughs> and um, so it's, it's interesting, that difference of kind of approach. You know, I kind of questioned why he was doing that and what that had to do with anything. You know, there was nowhere in the text. There were no signposts for him to be emaciated or anything. Right. But I guess it just boils down to something as simple as his character was desperately hungry. And so he decided to be desperately hungry. And there's just something very immediate and, and physical about that kind of approach that... Um, they influenced me a little bit when I went into the night of, actually, you know, just kind of working in a kind of quite an immersive way and particularly with the kind of physical transformation. So, so yeah, it was, it was interesting. I definitely learned a lot from that experience, both about how I like to work and ways in which I haven't tried to work yet. Right. Well, I think that there's as many actors as there are, there's as many approaches <clears> to Right. But I would think, to your point of... of not staying in touch and having a community of actors. I think, if nothing else, it gives you confidence that there's a bunch of different ways to get to a solution. Yeah, and also gives you confidence that everyone screws up. Right. You know, because, I mean, what you sometimes end up seeing is you see the pristine, edited, spit-shined performance that's presented to you, you know, after take 10, after the reshoots, after the amazing editors have come in, after the ADR... And it sometimes can just be really, really reassuring to know that other people forget their lines and other people screw up and other people beat themselves up afterwards. And um, I think it's, it's, it kind of takes a real bravery, actually, to kind of just let go and, and allow yourself to make mistakes. Was there a time when you said, OK, I'm, I'm going to loosen the reins a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I remember when I was doing Black Gold with... Um, uh, Jean-Jacques Henault and uh, Taha Rahim. Um, well, there, was this, there was this scene where uh, Taha Rahim's character, my brother, gets shot and I kind of jump off my cap- camel and, um, as you do, and uh, <laughs> the stage direction says, you know, Ali, my character, wails uncontrollably. And I don't normally uh, kind of pay massive attention to stage directions. Sometimes, I, you know, I think take it more as a suggestion. And I just thought, you know, I don't really wail uncontrollably. Let me try and go for that. And really kind of just, you know, spent that whole morning keeping myself in this zone, this kind of emotional incubator of sadness, which is not really how I like to work. I like to try and just be kind of quite relaxed uh, rather than holding on to a feeling. You know, sometimes it can get too marinated. Right. And just went in and just let go and was just screaming and bawling in my eyes out and crying my eyes out this scene and this scene just kind of went on for about you know a minute and then it was like cut and it was a bit quiet and John Jekano comes over and goes okay 
I think maybe a bit less, <laughs> a little bit less. And um, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it was absolutely awful. It was god awful. Like I went, went back and watched it and like, okay, cool. That's why I don't work like that. Um, but I'm glad I tried it. And you know, sometimes it takes balls just to just try a new way of working there and then on set, you know, just to kind of see what, what comes up. And there's a real kind of loss of control that comes with being an actor because you kind of, you set the buffet out, hopefully you kind of provide your director with a bunch of different options and you really can't tell what they're going to choose. I mean, the most extreme example of that, I would say, is working with Michael Winterbottom, uh-huh. who I did my very first film with. And, and Trishna too, with. yeah. And um, so the way Michael would work is completely improvised, no script, very chilled out, very quite hands-off as a director. And he might be directing you to do absolutely insane things. He'd be like, okay, so just gonna like, just, you know, like step, step up to her and just like take the knife out, just like stab her in the guts, get action. You're like, so if you want me to step up to her and stab her in the guts. Okay, cool. And that's the first you're hearing of it. Yeah, yeah. It's very chill. The days are very short. It's very relaxed. It's like kind of going on a holiday with buddies, you know. Um, creates a very relaxed atmosphere on set and has you doing absolutely crazy shit yeah. you know, based off his just relaxed vibe you know he's just gonna th- like, take a shit in the bucket and then throw up into the same bucket action <laughs> it's like what and there's, there's no <laughs> script and you're just kind of improvising stuff but w- so what you end up doing is you do this version of the scene this version of the scene this version of the scene this version of the movie this version and he in the edit will plot your journey and your graph so it sometimes feels like really weird you're like it's almost like you've been edited out of context it's like oh shit like you're literally just spraying out your your guts and he picks and chooses and he'll find the story within that um so for example in trishna the whole third act was kind of turned on its head yeah very much so well my character became a completely different person in the third act which, you know, to be fair, he called me up and said, this is why I have to do this. We need sympathy for her And, and we should say that it's based upon a, uh, a book. Well, yeah, it's really ambitious, actually. It's kind of based upon um, Tessa the D'Urbervilles by right. Thomas Hardy. So it's an uh, improvised adaptation of Tessa the D'Urbervilles set in modern India. And my character is actually a combination of two characters from the original novel. Right. In the, in the movie, you play the son of a wealthy hotel operator and you fall in love with a girl working at a hotel who's very poor, played yes. by Frida Pinto. Yes, exactly. And the two of you fall in love. and Yeah, but the kind of like underlying uh, you know, power imbalance yes. in the relationship comes to the fore, particularly as frustrations start kind of striking both their lives. Um, you know, things start fracturing a little bit and you start seeing a quite unhealthy power balance emerge and really consolidate itself in an abusive way. But it can be really weird. It's, it's like... That is my performance, but it's also not my performance, right. you know. So that's both kind of liberating and kind of like scary and a bit disempowering. And, but also kind of gives you a sense of perspective of like, really, that is what you're doing. You're putting some fuel in the tank. It's up to the director where he drives a car. Well, it definitely, you have to trust your director, right? Yeah. And if you don't, that's not the film you should be doing. Yes, because then you're not, not going to feel safe enough to like go out there and make mistakes, and say, I'm going to, you know, set the whole buffet out and trust you to, to, pe- to pick the best bits. Right. But, um, yeah, for, for in the third act of Trishna, I mean, my character was, for example, there are scenes where, you know, I'm making love to her and she's visibly upset. And when we did the scenes, she's, you know, crying. And my character carries on for a bit, notices, carries on for a bit, and then stops and goes, you know, baby, are you okay? Are you all right? 
But of course, in the edit, they were like, you know, by the third act, we have to really sympathize with her. Yeah. So isn't that funny? I just carry you, on. So you shot. A, a, I mean, we there could be a like totally different, different story movies. taken out of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is kind of, you know, a credit to his genius as well in terms of like, you know, finding the story he wants to tell within your performance. So, yeah, I don't know, kind of like having the comfort level to screw up, to like let yourself screw up is, yeah, I think it's really important. And sometimes that can come from just a sense of playfulness. Right. You know, creating a sense of play on set. When I did Four Lions, I don't think I ever laughed as much on a film set. You know, Chris Morris, who's a kind of... American viewers might not be as familiar with his work, but he's kind of like... And Chris made Four Lions, yes. which you play. It's a, it's a farce about terrorism. Yeah, yeah. It's about a bunch of guys that want to be terrorists, but they're just really bad at it, right. basically. <laughs> um, and so kind of really subversive in the sense that it humanizes them, both ter- terrifying and endearing. You know, it's much easier to go, oh, these people are evil, they're just demonic. And it's much harder to go, I kind of recognize myself in that person. Yeah. Which... I think is the kind of basis for all acting. Like, you've got to believe that on some fundamental level we're the same, right? It's just a set of contingencies and circumstances right. that mean you're in that chair and I'm in this chair. And if you don't believe that, then how can you play another character that isn't you? Exactly. Or how can you relate to a character whose life isn't the same as yours? So that film just kind of takes that premise and just takes it to an extreme and goes, you know, you know the ultimate bogeyman in our culture? Why don't we take, put you in their shoes for a minute right. and roll with them? So it's, um, for a control freak like me, acting is often just a process of like kind of abandoning control, which is why I can find it quite a, uh, you know, quite, an, quite a tricky experience at times, you know? I'm definitely that person that goes home and like, <laughs> be running the, you know, last week's lines in the mirror at 4 a.m. You, you can ruminate over it and... and- question it and look at it and critique yeah. it and you know some of my best friends say like you know my favorite game is like look, this is how I did it but this is how I should have done it right you know what I mean right. it's like dude we're eating shut, you know shut the fuck up we don't need to know about this right now so, well that um, brings up a question of how you watch your own performances or if you do like did you have to come to terms with watching your performances and accepting yeah I them? think that's something that you get better at over time you know I remember when I was first watched my first performances you kind of fixate on things in a way that no viewer will they're, they're watching the story as a whole you're a piece in that story when you're watching yourself you're fixating on like what you you know how much you were blinking or stuff that people no, no right. one notices but as you get better at that I found it has become a great tool and, and often I, I really like to go and you know after done a few takes go and watch playback oh you do um, yeah yeah just because there might be little things that I notice technically or it's just easier for me to watch than it is to try and it's kind of, I think, I like to think it helps the director out because they don't have to kind of sit and think of a really sensitive way of, like, telling you to, like, you know, look less dumb. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, th- I got it. You know, let me just, let me go back in, which can be, can be helpful. Right. They, they would probably say, look a little more to look smart. Less dumb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? I, I think that a lot of directing for a lot of actors is like identifying what each person needs. And, and you're right, I suppose the more confident you get in yourself and the more able you are to interpret your own performance within the story, the less you sort of need that kind of thing from a director. Yeah, b- but I, I still do think that your best work is when you kind of put yourself completely in the hands of a director who, and that you kind of sync up with. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, it's a strange one. I kind of feel like every time you kind of, you're rewriting the rule book, you know, you're kind of tearing up 
your old lessons and every job is is different to the last because of the alchemy of the kind of involved with the different people on set or the actors or director the material the nature of it the way they're shooting it for example you know something like something like four lions was shot handheld you know completely kind of performance first no marks that we had to hear and come and stand to to get into lights hardly lit and you know chris morris is kind of like the kaiser soze of british comedy is how I describe him. He's like this mythic figure almost who hardly ever does interviews and is worshiped as, you know, he kind of um he's been kind of banned from radio, he's been banned from television, he's been called the most hated man in Britain and he's probably like just you know, he's a kind of cult hero. And uh, he always does kind of very uh controversial stuff, you know, like a uh, slapstick comedy about lovable suicide bombers for example. <laughs> and um so his whole vibe would be like we're going to mess around you know obviously granted it's a comedy so but because of the tone because of the vibe of of the film and the, and the material you know he'd just be off camera and we'd be doing lines and be like you know you know corner my camel's dick it's like okay you, just, you know you try that whereas obviously you know the night of it was if you see it so kind of visually so precise yes. and Steve Zalian has such a distinct vision that it was very much often it was like ballet you know it was very very technical I mean you try and shoot a wide shot of someone through prison bars you literally have to make sure your eyes are right. like I noticed that watching it that, that there's a very, lot of times where it's very precise and so you're kind of yeah. going to take 15 going ah oh, now I'm off wait yeah okay got it there you know so the process is kind of different you have to find you know different ways into the material and different process every time so so I kind of I guess that's why I love it. It's, you always feel like you're a beginner. It's different than most any other job, right? Any when you're when you're working in a collaborative creative field, there is a new set of parameters each time you start a new project. Yeah, I I agree. I couldn't agree more. And and the lesson that I keep learning more and more is that these things are ultimately out of your control. You can set the right conditions. You know, I kind of think like we're like walking chemistry sets. You know, is that advice that Al Pacino gave Hillary Swank on on the set of Insomnia? It's like if you got any acting advice and he was like stay away from crafties craft services you know <laughs> it's true that like we're walking chemistry sets you know that sugar rush is not helpful before right. going into a close up or the sugar crash if they come to you second and it's so much of what we do is about managing this chemistry set setting the right kind of parameters you know tuning up the pinball machine in the right way and you drop that pinball in you don't really have and you, you don't you can't tell which way it's going to go and that's the way it should be yeah. which is why this idea of like having a gps in your performance like okay this scene I want to end up here this scene I want I, I kind of feel like that's I'm, i'm sure you can come up with some really beautifully crafted performances on that but this sometimes might lack the kind of madness and the magic of losing control um and that idea of not really having control over what those uh ingredients are in the chemistry set of of a, of a film crew is it always surprises me one one thing i keep noticing is how the dynamics on and off set end up mirroring each other oh really yeah so me and jake for nightcrawler we come in get to know each other you know it's polite sweet you know he's asking about me just like he's asking about rick for example right <laughs> you spend like 6 weeks on just night shoots with someone you can end up snapping each other. Yeah, right. Bet. Yeah. Right. It's fine. It's great. And before you know it, it's like I'm kind of on this kind of like really kind of like 
well, I guess he does take care of me. He's kind of like a big brother and he's a pal. He doesn't mean anything by it. And he's on this kind of like, Riz, I told you once before, you know, it's like, it's, hap- it's happening. Or with John Turturro, you know, in the night of, it, inevitably this guy starts taking me under his wing, you know. It, it, I just, I'm just drawn to him. I feel he understands me somehow. He's kind of fighting my corner at times. You know, de- defend- on set. Yeah. On set. Right. Yeah. He's suddenly my defender at times uh, amongst the like madness of a massive film, sh- uh, film set. I'm used to doing like tiny British indie films. I'm like, shit, like, how do I find my space? Like, this is how you find. No, he needs some, sp- you know. Do you think that was conscious on his part? No. This stuff happens. It's, it always just weirdly ends up happening. So do you think there's crossover like you take on that person's life and, and there's enough detail about it that it, that it spills over? Yeah, I actually, and again, I find that that happens most effectively when you put, um, the less deliberately you try and do it or arrive at the result of embodiment. Less control. Again, yes, kind of like input, focusing on the inputs rather than the outputs. So I, I always think that kind of character isn't a way of behaving, it's a way of seeing. If you see things in a certain way, if I see you as a threat, I will the behavior will follow suit. Again, I can't right. like focus on the, on the output or the end result. Otherwise, I'm kind of managing something that's mannered and planned. And so for me, something that I find really, really important is just trying to fill my head with the thoughts that that character might have until hopefully you get to that point where like you're seeing things a little differently. Like when we were on set for Nightcrawler and like we're shooting these nights in these like kind of slightly weird, weird neighborhoods in LA, kind of going from you see a kind of shopping trolley with some kind of, you know, plastic bags in it, maybe someone, you know, who's homeless has left some stuff in it, from going like, well, shit, maybe I'll take a step away from that, to kind of going like, you know, I don't know, just feeling, uh, you know, I've spent enough time on Skid Row and stuff to know, like, oh, sometimes people leave, like, valuables. And, I don't know, just, you take a step towards it, just inside. I'm not saying I'm, like, robbing homeless people or anything <laughs> like that. But, um, but you just have that kind of, a, a certain impulse. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman said, to play a character is to be able to defend them. Just to see things the way they see them as, right. as, as much as possible. And you're always going to go in and out, in and out. But if you... I mean, it's as simple as going, okay, me as Riz turn up in New York and I see a yellow taxi cab and I'm like, oh, yeah, the opening credits of Friends, right? That's not what I should be thinking when I see a yellow taxi cab as Nas in the night of. I should be thinking, oh, man, I wonder how long Dad's had to work today, for example. And, of course, you never fully got, I mean... I'm not the guy that goes around in character 24-7, but it's just about allowing your environment to trigger a different set of reactions in your chemistry set, you know, if you, if you tune it the right way. So that's why I kind of think it's all about, you know, finding the right way of seeing, kind of tuning things, the right associations with the right ingredients, but then when you get there, you don't know what the reaction's going to be. But that is every bit as valuable as you say, studying the text. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, ideally, I, in an ideal world, if you have enough time to prepare, then I would love to try and do both. But I kind of always see the text as, like, the tip of the iceberg. So my job is to, like, find those icebergs, you know, right. uh, underneath it. But, but that's something that's, you know, really, like, 
something that I've had to come to terms with as well now is like having less time to prepare. You know, sometimes when you go from job to job, yeah, having less prep time. The problem of success. V- very new and short-lived for me, I'm sure. But it's like this idea <laughs> I don't of think like, short-lived. well, this idea of kind of like, okay, so if you you like to do five things, that's great, very nice, good boy. Yeah, you get to do one. Yeah, how do you compress? all the work that you've done before into a shorter amount of time and not feel like you've cheated it? Like, how do you keep your confidence I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I have cheated, you know? Sometimes I feel like I don't feel as confident. And sometimes I feel like maybe if I've been doing it for a bit longer, maybe, like, I can go through the steps quicker. Sometimes. So that's... I don't know. I don't really know how to, how to deal with that, to be honest. I think that there's... You're forced to trust your gut a little more, I think. Um... You know, I, I remember I saw an interview with Tom Hardy talking about The Revenant where he said, Look, I'll be honest, and someone asked him, where did that accent come from? How did you research? He was like, well, I, I kind of like Platoon, the movie, but i got to be honest, I was, you know, I was a little bit naughty. I came straight off um, another film, like travelled the day after I rapped and was at the top of a mountain shooting. So I just had to kind of go with it. Right, and that's uh, that presents a whole different set of you know you challenges and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, the night of is. I mean, I would I would set it up, but I think everyone's seen it. It's amazing in this day and age of amazing television everywhere that a show could come out that's eight episodes long that everybody's talking about. And yeah, and I think that one of the great appealing things about the night of is that. There was so little dialogue in your in the first few episodes from you, and yet I think I think I, I speak for the audience when I say that I knew exactly what you were thinking and feeling. And yet I've never been to jail, and I've never you know oh, been roofied, you. and I've never you know any of, any of those things. <laughs> well, still um, time, yeah. But um, did you did you think about that going in? Like, like I, in terms, I, did, I guess, you know, it's, I've got to be honest. Like the success of the night of is is stunning to me. Because be. of the process of getting it made, which was really fraught and was a roller coaster. And to be honest, I just thought it was never going to get made. Um, so we shot the pilot in 2012. Right. So when I watch that, it's like watching a different person. Do you I've have a desire to reshoot the pilot? When oh, you... I have a desire to reshoot everything. <laughs> yeah. Me and Steve a, Zalian is a dangerous combination of like, kind of like, let's redo it. Guys, we're on take 40. It's, like, it's okay, we we'll do it. You know, he, he kind of gave me this incredible opportunity, which I'm so grateful for. And um, we shot the pilot in 2012. And we were like, okay, I think we went, it went well. Apparently they'll pick it up. And they didn't pick it up. They didn't pick up the pilot. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So that was it. We weren't going to do it. Then like months later, which is heartbreaking, months later, they pick it up. And we're like, okay, cool, we're going to do it. A month after that, James Gandolfini passed away who originally played John Stone in the pilot. So then that was it. The project was over. And then months later, maybe almost coming up to a year, it was back on and Robert De Niro was going to do it. And then they got the scripts all ready. And then he stepped away. And then it was like, well, this is over. Everyone was like, now it's really over. It's over. Yeah. We're done with it. And then I think Steve Zadian said, you know, you know who I always actually kind of wrote the role for who I had in my head when I was writing was John Turturro why don't we ask him we've got the scripts ready let's see if and then it was like get to New York next week you know 
We're doing that thing that you did two and a half years ago that's broken your heart six times you thought you're never going to do. You've probably had too much time to think about and too much time away from, and we're doing it now. And so I've never had such a kind of build-up to a job before. I've never had so much time to overthink and um, over-prepare, but also be caught by surprise so much by a job. Right. And so when we stepped into it, we were already like, this is that cursed thing. This is the thing with the curse on it that's never getting made. And the shoot was really challenging. It, you know, it was like in the middle of a superstorm, filming up in Yonkers in a prison, emotionally quite heavy. A real prison? Often, yeah, in Queen's Detention Center and uh, the tombs in, in downtown Manhattan. So the combination of all that was, and then, you know, Steve is just an uncompromising perfectionist. It's kind of incredible. I've never seen anything like it, you know. And uh, so that means when he felt he needed to take the time, we did. So, so we went over by a little bit. But thank God we did, because we got all we needed to. And right. he didn't want to compromise. He didn't want to cut episode seven. And so we're like, this is the thing that's never getting made. And as we're making it, we're like, this is the thing that's going to kill us if it gets made. And by the time we finish it, we're like, this is the thing that if it had come out in 2012, there wouldn't be so much amazing TV around. And now, like 2016, if it comes out, we're going to be lost in the mix. It's just another show about it's a just real another, crime. It's like, just another like, great show in a world of incredible shows that everyone is behind on watching. You know, I still haven't seen Breaking Bad. So the fact that we actually made it, we finished it, it didn't kill us, and, we, and it's reached an audience amongst all this amazing TV, it's almost comical to me. Yeah, I mean, when something hits the zeitgeist in such a way there is no way to prepare for it or to understand it you just sort of say great mm. that was my time when that happened right well it's it's funny as well because i think if the show had come out in 2013 before the you know the donald trump era um before the kind of real focus on the black lives matter movement and conversations about the you know prison industrial complex and policing of ethnic minorities I don't think it would have kind of reached as big an audience. And it's not like you're, you're hoping that all those things will start going badly in our society so your show does better. But it's, it's weird that, yeah, the, the timing, it just made it kind of quite resonant yeah. with regards to a lot of the conversations we're having in, in our society right now. So it, it's, it's funny how things work out. It's really weird. It is, and to think of you being in the center of that and... Uh, it, it is really a moment in terms of not only the things you discussed, the Black Lives Matter and, and some of the things with the political climate, but also mm. in Hollywood and in filmmaking itself and the, the focus on diversity and on real diversity. And, and like it all sort of happened. It, it, it's sort of at the crescendo of all of those conversations. Yeah, I hope it's the crescendo of that conversation, but often it feels like we're still kind of the very early stages of even talking about or addressing some of these problems. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, if any of the work that any of us do like contributes incrementally to stretching culture, or stretching, stretching the boundaries of, of empathy that can be expected or should be expected of an audience in relating to different kinds of characters, then that's like... I mean, that's, that's the Holy Grail, yeah. you know. To me, I mean, stories are about empathy. And it's like, I just think culture is this space where we can, we can put ourselves in someone else's shoes. So it just makes sense to have as many different kinds of pairs of shoes for people to try on and experience and relate to. Because really, we're, you know, we're complicated people. We're all mongrels in one way or another. 
But the world we live in forces us into these binaries. You're either this kind of guy or that kind of girl. You know, it's... Um, and for me, you know, code switching was just a day-to-day thing. It's almost like probably why I'm an actor. You know, in the course of one day, I was in a you know, working-class Pakistani household, child of immigrants, to um, a kind of posh, predominantly white school where I had kind of got a scholarship to attend, which is like an hour and a half away from my house. And, you know, when they were playing rugby and stuff that I just did not relate to and doing, like, the whole, like, we're going to march around in army uniforms and stuff... I would skip class and go and hang out with my friends that would attend schools and colleges close to where I grew up. So there were kind of three quite distinct cultures between like, you know, this private school, traditional household and kind of Brit-Asian street culture, I guess you could say. And pinballing between those has really kind of defined my adolescence. Um, And navigating those kind of taught me more about (laughs) inhabiting a role than probably, you know, anything ever could. Well, tell me about that. Tell me about, like, uh, growing up, because you're a second-generation immigrant. I mean, I would think you'd feel like a bit of an outsider no matter where you were because of that. Well, I guess, like, everyone's experience is a default experience to them. Sure. There's nothing, you know, it's just... You you don't have anything to compare it to. Right. It's only when when that conversation is dropped on your doorstep of, like, yo, what are you? Choose. Right. Choose. Are you this or are you this? Or if you leave an environment where many other people can relate to that mongrelhood and people are like, yo, you're a mongrel. If that's, when you, that's when you become, you know, very kind of self-aware. Do you remember a specific time when, when you made the connection that, that you're often defined as an outsider? Like, do you remember <laughs> when it went from, oh, this is my neighborhood to... Uh, I mean, look, I, I, I don't want to kind of make out like I've kind of had some miserable life or whatever, but I think many people who've grown up um, outside of what is deemed as like the default of either, uh, you know, class or ethnic or sexual identity feel that pretty much from the, from the go. Right. Like, um, you know, whether you suffer kind of like violence in your childhood, you know, but, you know, driven by hate crimes or, uh, you know, you know, brush up against the police or going to, you know, going to a school that's kind of generally populated by a different class, social class of people and kind of being really made aware of that. Um, I mean, I remember, well, not to get, so I don't want to dwell too much on the really, like, on the darkness or the violence and no, stuff, no. But, but there's, um, but maybe like a funnier example is when I went to Oxford University, which was like another kind of big step away from that environment. It was like, I remember the first person's door that I knocked on was my neighbours and I'd left my like phone charger at home. And it was like people walking around in bow ties and bow, like straw hats. It was like, I did not get this memo about fancy dress. And I knocked <laughs> on this person's door and said, I'm terribly sorry, you know, trying to be well-spoken. Would you mind if I could borrow your phone charger by any chance? And she laughed in my face and said, oh, my God, you remind me so much of Ali G. It's unbelievable. And I was like, this is going to be a ride and a half, you know. Um, but it was, that, that was great for me in a way because it was an experience of being just like from the get-go being told, you kind of don't belong here. This, isn't kind of for, this kind of isn't for you. And that was great because it was such great training for the film industry. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, you know, about, how, how that sort of outsider status kind of creates uh, a person who ends up being drawn to 
performing? After about a month at Oxford, I kind of, um, I remember I emailed my tutors and I was like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. You know, I just got quite depressed. I just felt really, I just really couldn't relate in, in so many ways, in, in weird little ways, in, in like, you know, I, I wasn't equipped socially for that. I, it was just, it was, I just felt such a disconnect. I f- Did you think when you went to Oxford, things would change, that it would be a different conversation? I didn't really or? know what to expect, to be honest. Yeah. It just felt like an abstract thing. It's something you're going to aim for. I went there. It was like a big culture shock for me. And I left and I kind of just took the time out and I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. And then I kind of just thought, oh, why don't I try and like do it kind of on my own terms? And After just try. that yeah, email and to I, the tutors. Yeah. And I, I was away for like a couple of weeks. And then... I came back and at that time really what I was doing a lot of was, was rapping and emceeing on pirate radio stations in London. There was a kind of explosion of, of you know, UK garage and grime music into the mainstream. And it was like, this thing's happening and I want to be a part of it and I've left that in London. So I thought, why don't I set up a club night at Oxford? <laughs> like a, a you know, hip-hop, drum and bass, garage club night. And so I went back and just kind of printed out these really shit posters in the computer room that used all my like printing credits and the only paper there was green paper, so you hardly even read it. It's just like, you know, hit and run. Because literally, there was a newspaper there, it was like, hit and run attack. I was like, that's a cool combination of words. Hit and run, hip-hop, drum and bass, at, left the club blank, Wednesday, DJs, like my friends from London. And I just went around to all these nightclubs going, listen, we've got like 500 people coming to this party, like, do you want it to be your club? Or... And just kind of... So you totally hustled. I totally just hustled, thinking I've got nothing to lose. I'm probably going to leave here anyway. Let me see if I can meet people that are like-minded. Let me see if I can Yeah, so what was the impulse for that? Was it, was I, I it to, to bring pers- the experience to you on yes, your own terms? Yes, and, and also to try and kind of create some space to breathe and, and to pursue my, my creative ambitions and the things I was passionate about. And I remember like 10.30 p.m. it was empty and it was like, oh, I didn't work. And then like as is always the way in club promotion, as I realized over the next like decade and a half, it's like everyone arrives in that ha- like half hour window, you know. And I, that's how I kind of paid for my, you know, paid for my time at university. And so it kind of made me feel like the place where you think you don't belong is the place where you should be. That's huh. the place where you can stretch things. That's the place where you can offer something new. And it can be lonely, and it was at times, and it will be in the future. But that's where you can contribute something different. And that was, that's what got me through, you know, these last 10 years in the, in the, in the film business. And, yeah, it was a great lesson. God, it's so fascinating. So at that time, um, were you, was acting on your brain at all? Yeah, to be honest, uh, you know, I um, quite honestly just didn't think it was feasible as a career at all. And that's partly because of the kind of messaging that you internalize when you look at the cultural landscape, you don't see yourself reflected back in it. You think, like, there's no space for me. Like, what am I going to play? Like, how can I earn a living playing, like, you know, cab driver number three for, like, how am I going to provide for a family? It's like, there's no space for me, man. There's, so I didn't think that there was any chance of that. But what was the initial impulse, like... To to apply to drama school? No, even even that you liked to act... Like, that how was did you from, even know you liked right. it? Right. That was, I guess, um, you know, my mum is, like, a real character. She, like, um, she's just, like, she's constantly doing these, like, when we were growing up, like, weird, like, voices 
and characters and it was like part of our game, like as a little kid. I don't know, it's weird. It's like we were just always, it was quite a, like, you know, boisterous, loud, loving household I grew up in. And it was like, you had to kind of, sometimes you, particularly as a little brother, I would kind of find myself having to perform to get attention. But, right. um, and then so my mom was like, put me into after school classes that, that would happen at the school I was at from like the age of eight. And then when I got to high school, I um, was really, I was, became quite disruptive. Um, and a teacher kind of said, look, if you're going to piss about, do it on stage, you know. Oh, really? supposed to. Yeah. So a teacher noticed that, yeah. that they could yeah, channel. Yeah, a couple of them actually, yeah. When you say disruptive, what, what was an example of that? I, I just had a temper, I guess. I just had a temper and um, I would get like easily bored, I guess. I don't know. I'd drink a lot of Coca-Cola. Maybe I was like sugar sensitive, caffeine sensitive. I was just like this hyperactive little bastard that was just always getting thrown out of the classroom. And like, you know, throwing chairs through windows and just kind of being a little nutter. And and the teachers kind of said, which I'm so grateful for, you know, teachers like Mr. Green and Mr. Coleman, Mr. Booth, Mr. Roseblade and, and, and you know, Mr. Brown, they, they kind of went over the years at different points when I was getting in, like increasing different levels of shit. They were like, they pushed me towards that. And... Um, and I just, it was just magical, man. Like staying at school after 5.30 p.m. And to rehearse plays. And, and the place is empty. You know, that assembly hall is empty and it's you, you got the run of the place. And like the camaraderie of it and the play and the idea that like coloring outside of the lines is rewarded. You do something a little bit mad and different and unexpected. Or it's something. so interesting to hear you say that. And then you go off to Oxford and, and your thought is, there's no way to follow acting because I, I can't support myself yeah. doing it. Well, Oxford was, was much more of a culture shock than, you know, it was where I grew up to my high school was like one class jump. Like going to Oxford, was, that, was, that was like a diff, that was like another planet, it felt like to me in, in lots of ways. Um, and I became accustomed to it and I'm grateful for that because, you know, I'm now aware of how to navigate those set of social codes you right. know what I mean which is very important in the British film industry which is generally populated by very upper middle class you know people um, of a certain background so it was training really but at Oxford I remember when everyone was applying for jobs you know lawyers, bankers whatever um, I just couldn't find I couldn't see myself in a desk job and um, my teachers always told me, like, you should be a lawyer or something. And I was like, I, d I don't have the kind of focus, concentration for that, you know. And I remember this one, this girl, Maxine, who I didn't even know very well. Um, it's a black girl at another college, probably one of the only, you know, black girls in my year group, you know, that I knew. Um, had seen me in a play, Jesus the Hop the A-Train, the Stephen Adigirgis play. Yeah. And said, look, everyone's applying for these jobs. I hope you're applying to drama school. You should definitely do something with the acting. And that was like one of the, I think that was like the only person, one of the only people that was like, you should pursue this. Wow. And I was like, because I just didn't think there's, there's didn't really scope. Well, I just or didn't think there's, it's not feasible. Like if you look at the cultural landscape, what roles are you going to play? Where do they put people like me in things? They don't. That's so sad. Uh, I hear that but, but, and it's but so people, sad. But people internalize that. And, and, um, and so I was, I thought, oh, screw it, you know what, like, it's unrealistic, but let me apply to one drama school and just see how it goes. And if I do, I'm going to do it for one year. So I applied to Central School of Speech and Drama and um, 
I remember the audition they offered me the role there. Rob Clare is amazing, amazing. What did you do for your audition? I did um, a speech that really spoke to my feeling about Oxford, which was um, Edmund's speech from King Lear. Now God stand up for bastards. You know, these fops got between, you know, sleep and wake that run the show, but actually us bastards, us mongrels, us outsiders that were conceived in the lusty stealth of night, we have an edge even if they kind of see us as dirty. And um, I did that and they offered me a role, uh, offered me a space. And so I was like, amazing, but then I couldn't afford it. So then I uh, applied for this, I was like, I applied for one scholarship fund and people generally don't get that. It's the Arts and Humanities Research Board, which they traditionally didn't used to give to you know, practical courses, more academic focus. But okay. I got that. But I still had a funding gap. And I randomly met this theatre producer in the in the West End who, like, came and saw me in a play in Oxford and said, darling, I'll take care of you. Thelma Holt, who literally just fairy godmothered me into drama school, said, darling, write a sick-making thank-you letter to, you know, Mr. T. Hesketh in Dorset. I was like, what? He's <laughs> like... Here's, here's the extra funds you need. I was like, oh my God. Like, so, you know, so I guess it's important to say, like, yeah, I've had obstacles, but that is like having the red carpet rolled out by life. That is like incredible luck and God. incredible privilege to be, to, to have that happen for you. Um, and then I got to go to, to drama school because of that. I mean, your story is so... Like, you wouldn't have applied to six other drama schools. No, probably. I wouldn't have. Definitely wouldn't have, no. It was on the precipice of not happening. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's sad is that that happens for so many people because they just haven't... That messaging telling them, you can do this too. I'm not just talking about acting. Right? <laughs> probably don't need more actors, but anything else. They're, they're, not, they're not receiving that messaging. They're not seeing that implicitly. They're not receiving that messaging, and so they don't. They won't give it a second crack or a third or a fourth. That kind of like, yeah, I'm gonna be here. A lot of people don't don't have that. But you know what? That that's true of all kinds of different people as well. Like I'm sure, you know, Meryl Streep sometimes thinks, shit, I'm, you know, I'm about to be found out. I, I think that is a common uh, thought with artists because I also think that if you were a really confident person, you might not pick this... this yeah, pick a job where you're basically begging everyone to go, well done, well done, well done, well done, good job, standing ovation. You know, it is true. I mean, we must, uh, on some level, I know a lot of performers and artists say they, they, they do it for themselves, but on some level, we're seeking validation. On some level, someone gave us a, you know, a, the kids laughed at a joke we made in class or something, and it stuck. But the tricky thing is, I think, is that validation-seeking impulse is what totally corrupts any performance. Because it's like that's the irony. Yeah, it's like you know when you're on stage doing a play, and it's like if you go looking for the laugh, you ain't getting that laugh. Right. It's not. It's gonna fall flat. Um, so I, yeah, that, I think that is the irony. It's like when you stop chasing that. Oh, it's amazing it when you out. think of it in those terms that anything gets done and that <laughs> yeah. anyone gets a role and, and manages to not totally like lock up inside and not. <laughs> I'd be able to do it. But um, you're about to embark on this massive um, worldwide journey of Star Wars uh, in terms of that being out there. And, I, and it's funny, I talked to Ewan McGregor about, about Star Wars a little bit and, and about how there was no, there's no way he could understand how much that role would change his life. Mm. You know, in, in terms of traveling the world and being recognized everywhere mm. and in terms of what a massive 
machine the movie is. Right. I mean, it's the biggest movie franchise on earth. And yeah. did you have a moment where you looked at the idea of Star Wars and the effect it's going to have on your life, and and sort of examine that um, in comparison to your independent, community-loving British film making experience, where you're putting your own <laughs> wire up? You know what's really funny is a lot of the same people that I made those British indie films with made Star Wars. The sound man, Stuart Wilson, was the first person who I ever worked with as a sound man on Road to Guantanamo. Um, you know, the, the guys that did Steadicam and the focus puller and, the, and the, the second unit camera person on Daytimer were on Star Wars. It's an interesting thing has happened where, you know, a lot of these big American movies are made in the UK now because of tax breaks and we've got, you know, I'd like to think great infrastructure of crew and good talent and stuff uh, and the studios. So it weirdly felt quite comfortable it was Did like it feel lots like of an familiar film? faces it, you know it's weird like the way Gareth shot it as well he would often operate camera really yeah it has a kind of like slightly kind of boots on the ground immersive rough and ready feel to it so it, it's obviously the fact you walk in they've got like imported palm trees from all around the world and like giant things are exploding and there's like a thousand stormtroopers on set. That doesn't feel like an indie film. Right. Um, that feels like a theme park. But weirdly had that kind of slightly tactile, rough and ready energy to it. But that's making it. In terms of the effect the film may or may not have, I, I, I don't, I haven't really, I mean, I'm aware of the fact, it, I'm like, oh, wow, cool. Like, it's a toy. Like, it's oh, you. A, yeah. Yeah. But, and you're aware that, like, you know, obviously it's massive and the fans love it. And I feel just, like, really honoured to be a part of it. It feels, just feels really cool. You know, I grew up watching those films um, with my brother. You know, some of the, my earliest memories of, like, are of Ewoks and, you know, Atats. So it feels really cool. It feels like an honour. But I, I, I guess I haven't quite stepped outside of it to go what the effects will be. I'm still kind of enamoured with the inside experience of making it where right. it's like, you know, there'd be a prop there and you pick it up and it's like, oh my God, they've actually put a touch screen on it and buttons and there's like, they've animated every... We spent I, a lot on yeah, these cups. Yeah, right, exactly. What can I steal? <laughs> um, so, 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 yeah, I'm still kind of like soaking up the experience of having made it. So I guess, and I guess there's no way to imagine how things will change. There's, you just have to go through it. Yeah, or even if they will change. And also this weird thing where, like, as an actor, lots of people tell you every time you do anything, like, oh, this will, like... This is this, the one. This is the thing that will help you make other things you want to make, or maybe a lot of people will see this. And there's no way of telling. So I know this is different with Star Wars, you know, Generally, they, these films get watched. But, <laughs> yeah, um, I think it watched but, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but it's, it's, you, you're kind of conditioned to kind of like take that with a pinch of salt, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I'm sure no one was saying that on the night of. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So you kind of, you don't really believe anyone. You kind of just think, you don't know that. Yeah, and you right. don't, And I don't, so. Well, I, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how that how that manifests itself yeah, in your career. Yeah, um, I, I want to talk about music before, before we t- stop because you have a total other career as Riz MC and you have a, this group called the Sweatshop Boys and you are a serious musician as well. And, um, and I was watching an early performance of yours 
on YouTube. Which which one? Hey, Glastonbury in like right. 07 okay. or something. Wow, yeah, yeah. And and it was Your so... Your research is amazing. You're like <laughs> off the chain with research. I it's, love it. It's, it's too much. Incredible. It's like Thank my you. brain explodes. So kind of you. But, but I was watching this and you finish a track and all of a sudden you say, you know, I'm not one of those MCs that's into ice and whips and guns and hoes and I don't have bitches and I'm not a millionaire and I don't have bling. And, and you're saying this to introduce your next song. Um, and, and, but I, like it stopped me in my tracks because... I, I think of a lot of your lyrics are completely um, an opportunity to express your unique cultural viewpoint in a medium that your cultural viewpoint isn't often, or, or it's underrepresented a lot of the time, mm. right? Like I think about English, Dan, I think about how you talk about how um, you, you relate the queen to, uh, and the class system to, like they've been in the same class since boarding school. And I immediately, I immediately get that from your perspective that, that you're all living on this tiny little island and yet there's so many different class realities. And, and I guess watching the evolution of your songwriting, like anything else, the more you do it, the more nuance you can add to it. And the more nuance you can add to it, the more specific you can make it, the more universal it becomes. Yeah, it's that specific thing. I think that's exactly right. I think it's having the confidence to kind of just be specific to your experience. If I look at my first album, Microscope, that was very much me going like, well, let me like talk about, get things off my chest or, um, you know, explain my ideas on like the world. Right. And that never resonates as well as kind of just, you know, talking about your specific experience, like mining, your, you know, your own life. That's yeah. what, you, but you assume, again, that it's like, who's going to care about that? Who can relate to it? When I did the English Thon mixtape, I actually recorded that in 2013 and didn't release it till 2016 because I just shelved it. I was like, who's going to care about this? Like, what is like 10 British Pakistani kids in Bradford are going to be like, oh, that's my life. Like, that's my, that's no, my yeah, jam like right no there. No one yeah. else is going to give a shit. Yeah. And it was weird that kind of when things started coming to a head around Brexit and I saw a kind of a rising xenophobia in this, in this country, which I think is really built on multiculturalism and it's something that I'm really proud of. Um, I thought, oh, shit, I've got that thing, that, that mixtape I did years ago and I, and I put it out. And I, I think, think 2012, 2013, that was your time. You know what I mean? <laughs> Everything I've got coming out now was made six years ago. That's the, that's the, I've got nothing left. That's the thing. Um, so, so I, yeah, and, and I put it out. And I think it takes a certain confidence and a maturity to go like, no, I think maybe in the specificity of why I say, A, maybe that's valid, and B, even if people can't relate to the, to the specifics, they can really relate to the, to the emotional truth of it. And, and so, yeah, I think that's been an evolution is in embracing the specific and trusting that it can become universal. If I look at like two of the um, two people I really admire, say, you know, kind of similar age to me, work in TV and say someone like Donald Glover and someone like Lena Dunham, they really yeah. just kind of mind the specificity of their own experiences in creating their TV shows. And they really resonate because people people can see it's honest. People just want yeah. honesty, right? They want authenticity. Even if you didn't grow up in Atlanta, you didn't grow up, you know, how the characters and girls did. It somehow resonates because it just feels real. And I'd like to think everyone's journey, including my own, might be like one of being more and more comfortable with being themselves. Well, it takes an incredible amount of courage to do it. I, I'm thinking of your song, um, Sunburst. Yeah. Which, there's no other way to say it than it's a song that details the 
the feeling of depression. Yeah. And it seems like you can't write like that unless you felt like that. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I've experienced depression. And I think I've, my brother's actually a psychiatrist and he tells me that one in three people will experience depression at some point in their life. There's a lyric yeah, of that yeah, in the exactly. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He should really get writing credit on half of my tracks. <laughs> he actually jokes about that. So yeah, he, he, I often take things to him and he's like, well, what about this? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something we need to talk about. You know, mental health is something that is really under-resourced in both of our countries. And, you know, I think it's something in particular that we see in... In, in the music industry as well, where you have a lot of young kids who kind of like create a kind of viral smash hit EDM track on SoundCloud. Before you know it, booking agents are putting them in front of rooms of like 1,000, 2,000 people. They're like, they're kids, you know, they drink, they start touring heavily. You're in a bar from 6 p.m. for a sound check. You get, you know, before you know it, like people have substance abuse problems and we don't talk about it because they're cash cows until they're burned out. And And I just think that, yeah, I, I just, I'm sure everyone would agree that it's like tricky to talk about mental illness or, or your mental health. And um, I just think, I think it's important too, man. Like we, we, so many of us go through this, so many of us. So if we just yeah. talk about it, maybe that'll just make it, make it easier for other people too. Was that hard to write and think, you know, people are going to read this? Or... Again, I just assume no one's ever going to hear any of this stuff. It's like, that no one's going to see the night of, no see, one's I ever going to hear English time. I, I think your I've life been is changing. the assumption that... There's nothing underground anymore. <laughs> your, your life is, like, getting larger, yeah. and your experience is getting, you know, like, right. your, your reach, I guess. And that must be, that must be... It's hard, but that's hard for that to not kind of uh, poison your, the purity of, of you know... Your creative process if you want yeah. to be confessional and stuff so I don't know I, I, I think that's a good way of operating under, like assuming that no one no one's really going to check it out anyway that's been that's served me well so far so I think it's a good way of like uh, of carrying on I, you know the reality is man like it's hard to get people to the cinema right now it's yeah. hard to get people to want to download your album for free it's like there's such a glut of content out there that it's, you know, it's, it's attention spans. You know, attention is the new gold dust, really. So I think probably my assumption is truer than even I'd like to think. I mean, what a great idea that is, right, as an artist. What a great statement that is, that just make work as though no one's ever going to see it and make it as personal as you can and then let the chips fall where they may, right? Yeah, I hope so. Well, I mean... Except for in the case of Star Wars. Yeah, except for the other voice in your head that's going like, oh, I want to get a round of applause for this. Like, I hope people think this is cool. Yeah, looking for that Facebook like. I mean, we've all got that duality, haven't we? Yeah. Well, listen, this is fascinating. And and I hope everyone sees this conversation because I'm fascinated with the work you're doing. And uh, thank you, man. Thank you so much for watching all uh, all those YouTube videos. I wish I could give you that that time back. (laughs) But thank you. You invoice me for that time. You got it. Exactly. We'll, We'll we'll send you a bill. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for doing. Cheers. It.